0: Day. Uh, you know, I love the Fourth of July. Uh, my brother-in-law isn't here, and, which I was sad about because he loves the Fourth of July. He always brings lots of fireworks that I don't have to buy. So, uh, I wish he was here. But, uh, now Happy Independence Day. I was talking with John before. He was saying, you know, you, you enjoy Independence Day, uh, but obviously our real independence, our real freedom, comes in Jesus Christ it's in heaven. Um, As much as we talk about being citizens of the United States and how proud we are of that you know we enjoy that uh, being citizens of heaven is so much more important and so just being cognizant of that today as we blow stuff up. I'm looking forward to it I'm looking forward to it Uh, but I'm only going today when stuff is like 75% off. Uh, It's good to be back. Our family was out obviously last uh, couple weeks ago. We got back Monday night uh, Took a trip down to Texas. Had never been there before uh, But we went down to Corpus Christi drove about as far south as we could get and really just Sat on the beach and tried to slow things down a bit, Uh, but that's all a distant memory now (laughs) We came back to a pretty busy week uh, just getting caught up with work and uh, the kids went right to a youth conference and um, Uh, Jeff and Laura, Jeff and Laura got married Wednesday night, which was awesome. They are uh, on their honeymoon. I got to do my first wedding, which was really cool. And uh, everything went super smooth until the end. And I realized that I forgot the marriage certificate. (laughs) Laura walked up, she's like, you forgot the most important thing. I'm like, what? I was like, oh man, did I forget to pronounce them husband and wife? And she's like, no, the marriage certificate. She was joking. And I'm looking at her like... I literally forgot the most important thing. <laughs> so I had to race home and get it so they could sign off and officially be married. Um, but they are on their honeymoon up in Glacier National Park and from the pictures I see, they are really happy. Uh, and that's really cool. I was really happy on vacation. Um, <laughs> we we have a lot of fun. We were, you know, I enjoy spending time with Alicia and with the kids. Um, the ocean is my favorite place in the world. That's my happy place. Uh, there was baseball, there was barbecue. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. But ultimately, my happiness was based on my circumstances. You know, my circumstances were such, I mean, I was surrounded by things that I loved and I was happy. Um, and as we were down there and we were having a good time, and I was thinking about just some of the different trips that we've had. Um, there was a trip that we had planned that didn't go the way we wanted it to. In 2012, Uh, we were going to take a trip out to Colorado. We'd never been out there before, and we were gonna go to Colorado Springs. And if you remember back in 2012, uh, that area, the state of Colorado, was just being decimated by forest fires. Uh, It was one of the worst years that they'd ever had for forest fires. And I remember it pretty well. I looked it up, because I was thinking about it. It said Colorado Fire Departments reported 4,167 wildland fires throughout the National Fire Reporting System. The fires destroyed more than 648 structures, killed six civilians, burned more than 385,000 acres, and caused at least 538 million in property losses. And that was a preliminary report when that that, uh, article came out. But I remember it well, because it was June 26th, and it was a Tuesday, and we were supposed to leave, and we're watching the whole thing happen. And literally, the fire was coming over the mountain towards Colorado Springs, and they were evacuating people out of there. And so they were canceling everything and letting people out of their reservations. And so we're sitting there thinking, you know, man, what are, what are we going to do on such short notice? And Alicia's aunt actually said, "Have you guys ever thought about going to Milwaukee?" <laughs> <And we're> like, <laughs> <laughs> Nobody goes to Milwaukee on purpose. Okay? <laughs> but we didn't have anything else planned, so we're like, "All right, we'll go to Milwaukee." And we told him other we had a good time. Um, I didn't know it, but the Harley Davidson, you know, museum is up there. It was, it was a lot of fun, but anyway, um, we did. And as I was, uh, if you go out to Colorado now, um, you can see that, that wildfire that was coming up or to Colorado Springs was the biggest one that they had ever had. And if you go out there, you can still see the effects of the wildfires and how it's changed the landscape and how they're all thinned out. And there's just still a lot of scarring. I mean, when we were out there, you could see some of the trees that were still scarred from the fires that had come through. And as I was doing some research, uh, I found this one tree, it's interesting, there's one pine tree that actually needs fire to reproduce itself, it's very strange. Uh, most pine cones fall on the ground, they have to go through the winter, they have to freeze, which you know starts the process for the seeds and everything, uh, so that when it opens up in the springtime, the seeds fall to the ground and they can get planted. Actually, I looked into uh, growing one from scratch, which you can't do, but anyway, the article said you could put pine cones in the freezer because it would like, simulate you know, the, the frozen winter they would go through. And then in the springtime, you know, when the seeds opened up, you could plant them. It didn't work. But there is this one pine tree called the lodgepole pine. And it has pine cones that will stay on its branches for years. And when they fall, they won't open up. They'll stay tightly sealed until a fire comes through. And when a fire comes through, that fire activates or opens the pine cone. And the seeds fall out, and they fall into that, you know, carbon-rich soil, that, you know, from the trees and all the ashes and everything. And they take root. And it's interesting because it had to go through the fire to be productive, to be fruitful. Just that, I found that really interesting. Um, we sing a song that goes, uh, "There's another in the fire." Oh, and I love that song. I do. But the reality is that is that song is based out of Daniel three where three Hebrew boys get chucked into a fiery furnace because they won't bow the knee to an idol. And um, you guys probably know the story, but Nebuchadnezzar is king over uh, Babylon, and he, for some reason, he gets it in his head that he wants to build an idol, this huge idol of himself. And so he gets together a band, you know, the Get Along Gang or something like that, <laughs> and when they play the music, everybody is supposed to bow down to this idol, to the statue of himself. But Shadrach, and in the video had already decided that they weren't going to do it, and so the music starts and everybody bows down except for these three, and they're standing. And I have to imagine that people are standing there, like looking up at them. One, the music don't you hear the music? And they're just standing there. And obviously this ticked Nebuchadnezzar off, and the penalty if you didn't bow was you were going to get thrown into this blast furnace, this fiery furnace. And he was so mad that he had it heated up seven times hotter than it normally was. And he said, put him inside. And it was so hot that when they opened the doors, the guys that were pushing them inside got vaporized. They died immediately when they were pushing them inside. That's how hot it was. And they get pushed inside, but nothing happens to them. They're walking around inside. And King Nebuchadnezzar is freaking out because he's like, wait a minute. Didn't we throw three guys in there? And I see four. And one looks like the Son of God. And so he calls them out, which is funny. I don't know how long they were walking in there. Maybe they were like, one minute. You know, hold on a second. We'll be out in a minute. We're hanging out with Jesus. And, you know, the big difference, the only difference in that story was that Jesus was there waiting for them. Um, If he hadn't been there, they probably would have been martyred. They probably would have died. And who knows if their story would have even been told. Uh, There are martyrs, people that die for Jesus every single day around the globe, and their story won't be told until we get to heaven. And that happens a lot. But when they come out of the fire, it says that they didn't even smell like smoke. They didn't even smell like smoke because they had been with Jesus. You couldn't even tell they had been in the furnace. And I would venture to say that their witness was pretty fruitful because they had been through the fire their convictions their hearts didn't change based on their circumstances and because of that um, they were very fruitful they made up their minds beforehand you might say well Nathan thanks for the science lesson (laughs) thanks for the reminder on Shadrach Meshach and Abednego but what does that have to do with this new book that we're starting we're starting Philippians uh, today I'm super excited I might be more excited about Philippians than I was about Ruth and I was pretty excited to go through the book of Ruth So um, I started thinking about it while we were on vacation, Um, and we're just going to do an overview of the book of Philippians today, so um, I might look down at my notes more than normal, Uh, but I was thinking about when we were on vacation, where should we go to next, what book, and I was thinking, you know, first we started in Galatians, and we talked about joy, or I'm sorry, we talked about grace, grace over legalism, um, and how, you know, the legalists were coming in, and they were trying to get the people to, you know, keep the Jewish laws. But he was stressing grace. And then we went from there to Ruth, and that was all about a Redeemer, how we have a Redeemer who saves us. And now we're moving on to Philippians, where the overarching theme is joy joy in the midst of our circumstances, joy no matter what. And I was thinking, you know, once we come to the saving grace of God, once we come to the knowledge of His saving grace, and then we realize that there is a Redeemer that saves us, that should lead us to joy. Should lead us to joy, uh, which is where we're going to go today. Someone once said that the surest sign of the presence of God is joy. That's stupid. The surest sign of the presence of God in somebody's heart is joy. Have you ever met somebody and you're like, man, they have to be a Christian? <laughs> they have to be a Christian. Like, nobody's that happy. This early in the day, <laughs> something's different about them. And you talk to them, and then they, you know, drop, you know, a blessed or something like that. And you're like, "Yep, I knew it. that person's a Christian." Um, there's another saying that uh, joy is the flag that flies over the castle of our hearts that announces that the King is present today. That's a pretty good one. I like that. Joy is the presence of God in our hearts, regardless of what's going on around us. Psalm 16:11 says that in your presence is fullness of joy and your presence is fullness of joy how can people know that the king is present today in our lives how can they know that he's near well first like the hebrew boys uh, you have to have your mind fixed on god you have to have your mind focused on jesus and making him the center and when we make up our mind to make him the focus god will do a work in our hearts and we'll be changed we can have joy in our hearts. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had made up their minds long before they heard the music playing. They'd made up their minds beforehand. Because that happened, God did a work in their hearts, and they were able to walk through the fire and not come out stinking like smoke. Uh, A lot of us, well, all of us, at some point in time, have been guilty of what I would call stinking thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, Our bad attitudes, um, our bad mindsets cause us to stink, and we have to change our minds before God will change our hearts. We got to change our minds before God will change our hearts. He will change your heart, but he won't change your mind. You have free will. You have to make a choice. And our Calvinist friends might disagree with that, but you do have to make a choice. Some people are like, "Well, how do I know if I'm saved? You know, is it is it God's you know sovereignty? Is it free will?" And I would say, if you make a choice today, I can guarantee that you've been chosen. (laughs) Um, Make a choice. Actually, I have my chosen t-shirt on today. It says trouble. Did you guys watch the chosen this last week? It was awesome. If you haven't watched it, you should watch it. It's a good one. Jesus faces off with prayer. It's good. Um, Some people might say that happiness is a state of mind. Uh, Not true, (laughs) because my happiness is dependent upon my circumstances, what's going on around me, how I feel at the times. Um, But we can have joy in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficult circumstances, if we renew our mindset. Romans 12.2 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then in Romans 12, 12, 12 um, it's down to verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in prayer. And then in chapter 2 of this letter, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul talks a lot about how we think, our mindsets, what's in our head, where's our heads at. This is going to be interesting because I did not put these in. They're going to be all over the place. Okay. Uh, This book, just four short chapters has so much practical application in it. Uh, Sometimes we read through the Bible and we're like, okay, now how am I supposed to apply this to my life? Paul gives us that all throughout the book of Philippians. Um, There is so much what we would call billboard material, uh, verses that are underlined or appear on social media uh, here in the book of Philippians, but we're just going to do an overview today. Uh, So it breaks up kind of this way in chapter 1. Chapter 1 really deals with having a single mind, and not not being single, (laughs) but having a single focused mind, uh, how we live our lives. Chapter chapter 2 deals with having a submitted mind, um, how our example looks to other people. So chapter 1 is our life, how we're living, and chapter 2 is more our example. Chapter 3 deals with a simple mind, that's our goal, to have a simple mind, you know, Salvation isn't complicated. It's really simple. It's by grace through faith. Very simple. And then chapter 4 deals with having a settled mind. That Christ is our sufficiency. It's already settled. He is sufficient. This is probably one of the most intimate of Paul's letters. Um, In some of the letters that he's writing, he is either addressing some issue in the church, something that's happening uh, from the outside, or a theological issue that they're having inside the church but this letter in particular um, is a thank you letter to the church in philippi if you remember when he wrote to the church in galatians uh, he was writing to correct them because the legalists were in saying hey you need to be circumcised if you are going to be a real christian and paul was saying no that's not the case it's all by grace Um, and what he's doing here to this church uh, in Philippi, he's sending a thank you letter for people that have been loyal to him and also loyal to the gospel. Uh, they're near and dear to Paul's heart because this was the first church that Paul planted when he got into Europe. Um, it, the first church he planted with Timothy and Silas. And now he is writing to them 10 years later under Roman imprisonment. So he's in Rome. He's in prison. And... Um, This is serious, like he's been in jails, he's been in prisons and other places, but now he's in Rome and he might stand before the ruler of the known world at that point and he doesn't know what's gonna happen. Um, If he stands before Caesar, they didn't like Christians at this time, right? Um, In fact, one of the the Caesars, Nero, uh, who was just crazy, would take Christians and he would dip them in hot wax And he would put them in his garden, and he would light them on fire. And he would say, now you really are the light of the world, because that's what Jesus called us. And he would ride around in his chariot through his garden with, you know, these human candles on fire. And um, then they would take some of the Christians, and they would dress them up in sheepskins. And they would put them in the Colosseum with bears and lions and all kinds of stuff, and just watch them be torn apart, because... They served the good shepherd and we were his sheep. And so they would do that. And they hated Christians. So here we have Paul sitting in prison. And the Philippians are a little freaked out because they've got some persecution coming on them now where they are. uh, And they're worried about their friend Paul. So they send a member of their congregation, Epaphroditus is his name. They send him to Paul with a gift, with a monetary gift, to find out how he's doing and to share what's going on back home. And because Paul's mind is fixed on Christ, his heart is with this group of believers in Philippi. And so he picks up his quill and his parchment and he starts writing this letter of encouragement, this letter of, um, you know, thank you to this little church where the encouragement is joy. It's all about joy in the midst of trials. And here he is sitting under Roman guard and he's writing to these guys, hey, be joyful. Um, I'll be honest, if I'm sitting in a prison in China and I might be facing execution for my faith, I don't know if my first thought would be to pick up a pad and pen and write encouraging notes back home for everybody to be joyful. I'd like to think it would, but I don't know. Um, At a time when most people would be worried about losing their heads, he's thinking about these group of believers in Philippi and he's telling them to have joy we don't really face persecution here in America and, um, I don't say that to make us feel guilty or to make us feel bad um, I love living in America I'm glad that I live here and enjoy the freedoms that we do um, but we're celebrating this weekend uh, how blessed we've been and this country that's been blessed because it was founded on Christian principles with men who believed in Jesus Regardless of what the History Channel tries to tell you or how they try to rewrite history, these men were Christians and they founded the country that way. And now we live in a world where that's not the case. Uh, We live in a place where they are running away from the God of the Bible very, very quickly. And I cringe at times when I watch sporting events and they sing, God Bless America. You know, everybody stand for the singing of God Bless America. And I cringe because um, God has blessed America. And we are rebelling against him big time. Um, And I don't know how much longer that will last. But the verse I mentioned back in Romans, don't be conformed. Don't march to the tune of this world, what you see as normal in culture. We're not supposed to march to that. Be transformed. Have a new mind that's focused on Jesus. That's more important now than ever before. It really is. People need to see joy in our lives. And unfortunately, our tendency when things are good, when times are easy, is to kind of get complacent, right? Um, To relax. And if we're being honest, if we're telling it like it is, the church in America is pretty lazy. Okay? Uh, We are. We simply slide it into cruise control and relax. You know, there are there's a stretch in Texas, guys, where the speed limit is 85 miles an hour. <laughs> 85. That freaked me out. That was exciting and terrifying all at the same time. Uh, because pe- people don't drive the speed limit, right? They drive like 10 miles over the speed limit. So people are flying. It's like NASCAR. People are flying down the highway at 90, 95 miles an hour. And I'm like, then I'm in a minivan with a rooftop carrier. I <laughs> can't So I had to stay in the right-hand lane. People are flying down the highway. Now, on the way back, on the way back, we ran into some nasty weather. It started raining, and I mean it was a monsoon. I haven't driven in rain like this in a long time, where you literally could only see right in front of you, and that traffic that was flying down the highway an hour earlier, when everything was fine, was now going about forty miles an hour. We were crawling along the highway um, because of what was happening, and. When we go through storms in life, we have three options. We can either keep cruising along on cruise control like nothing's happening, and you're going to crash. It ain't going to be pretty. We saw some of those. You can pull over and put your blinkers on. You can kind of check out, metaphorically, not really giving driving advice, but you can <laughs> check out, put your blinkers on, which we thought about, <laughs> we we're only about an hour away from the hotel, so we stayed on. Or, you can stay laser-focused on the road, on the one who said, I am the way. I mean, I was white-knuckling it for about 30, 40 minutes down the highway looking at the lines ahead of me. And when we go through storms in life, we need to be laser-focused on the one who is the way, the truth, the life, the one that is, says, I am the way to the Father, to salvation, to joy, and to peace. And that is a theme that we're going to see all throughout this book of Philippians he says rejoice he said he uses the word joy or rejoice which basically just means to rejoice if you've lost your joy you need to rejoice he used that over a dozen times in this book so we need to have joy no matter what in Isaiah 53 this messianic chapter um, it's a beautiful chapter and it talks all about Jesus uh, and it calls him the man of sorrows. Jesus, the man of sorrows. And um, I'll read a portion of it to you. In verse 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The man of sorrows. Jesus was crushed, and yet in Psalm 45, it says that God anointed him with the oil of gladness above all his companions. So he's a man of sorrows, but he also had the oil of gladness. People loved to be around Jesus. He was a happy guy. Yes, he was acquainted with grief, but he had joy. Christianity, gang, is supposed to be a joyful religion. supposed to be joyful. Uh, I don't know when it happened, but somewhere along the line, there was the idea that super spirituality went hand in hand with misery. Like, if you were serious about God, if you were serious about religion then you look like you had been baptized in prune juice. And that's totally against Scripture. Totally against Scripture. In Psalm 34, it says, To taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? Not taste and see that the Lord is sour. He's good. If we experience Jesus, we will have that oil of gladness as well. What's supposed to make us stand out in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation As Paul will say here in chapter 2 in this book, is our joy, is our hope that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. That should be what sets us apart, our hope in the middle of pain and suffering. James would write in his letter, first chapter, second verse, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We become saints that are perfect and lacking in nothing when we can have peace and joy in the middle of difficult circumstances. Paul was chained often to guards. round the clock, he would be chained to, to a soldier. And they would change out the guards like every six hours. So every six hours, Paul got a new guard. And the way that he saw it He had a captive audience like he wasn't the one that was captive the guys that were chained to him were captive every six hours you got a new guy to preach to and what would happen is these guys as they're witnessing paul go through this trial sitting in prison but still full of joy and writing letters and singing praise to god is that they started to change their minds and god started to do a work In their hearts. Look in the at the end, the final verses of this letter, Paul says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What? Like, how are there saints, how are there Christians in Caesar's household? I would suggest to you that these men who were watching him, these people that were witnessing him in his imprisonment every single day, and how he was living it out, people said, I want that. In my life I want that kind of peace I want that kind of joy when the circumstances around me say I should be depressed I should be bummed out they changed their minds and God changed their hearts interesting story that I found um, the Roman Empire actually split into at one point there was an east and a west and one side was controlled by instant Emperor Constantine who actually, legalized Christianity. It wasn't a bad thing anymore, it was still being oppressed, but it wasn't illegal um, around 320 AD. And there was another guy, Licinius, who became emperor of the other half. I think it was the eastern half, and, Lys- and uh, Constantine was the west half. Uh, Licinius did not like Christians, and so he was still trying to suppress Christianity, and they had broken away from the other half. And what would happen was there was this group, there was this army, this group of soldiers. That was on the eastern half, and it was wintertime, and they were up in the mountains. And one of the one of the generals there said, "Listen, the C- you know, Caesar, Licinius says that we are to um, call him Lord. Caesar's Lord, and we need to sacrifice to the Roman gods. So what we're going to do is everybody's going to line up. You're going to declare your allegiance to Caesar, um, and then we're also going to sacrifice to these Roman gods. And there were forty men." that were part of this, part of this thundering legion, is what they were called, uh, that were Christians. And they said, listen, we can't do that. We are Christians. We follow Jesus. And he is our Lord. We can't say that Caesar is Lord. And they were like, look, just come on. Everybody has to do this. You don't have to mean it. Just say it. And they're like, we can't deny Jesus. We can't say. We can't lie. That would be worse. And so word makes it up to one of the commanders and he gets ticked. And he's like, listen, Word's not getting back to Caesar that some of my men aren't going to honor what he's told us to do. And he has them flogged, he has them whipped, he has them beaten with chains with hooks on them, and then he puts them in jail. He says, listen, well, leave them there for a couple days until they change their mind. Um, But they don't. They don't change their mind. And so he gets even angrier, and it's wintertime, and there's this frozen pond outside. And he says, okay, tell you what, strip them down naked and put them all out in the middle of that pond, and we'll see how long it lasts. And the guys themselves actually started taking their clothes off. They're like, you want us out there? Okay, well, we'll do it. So they start undressing themselves, completely naked. They go out in the middle of this frozen pond, and they start singing, and they start praying. And there's 40 of them, so they start singing, you know, 40 brave soldiers for Jesus, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. And the sun is starting to go down, and the general says, listen, light some fires over here on the shore so you guys can keep warm. As a matter of fact, why don't you make some warm baths? And just let them know, you know, hey, when you guys are ready, you know, relief is waiting for you over here. And, you know, all during the night, they're yelling at like, look, don't be idiots. This is ridiculous. You guys are going to die for this silly confession. But they won't come in. And there's one soldier who's watching this whole thing take place. And he's watching these guys' faith and how they're praying that their number won't be broken. And how they'll remain steadfast. And all of a sudden, one of the guys can't take it anymore, one of the forty. And so he gets up and he starts to go back to the shore. And this guy who had been, this soldier who had been watching this the whole time. His mind is starting to change about these Christians. He's impressed. And his conviction turned to anger when he saw this guy bail out and come back. And then his conviction turned to faith. And he took off all of his clothes and went out and sat with these guys who are now singing 39 brave soldiers for God, you know, for Jesus. And when he got there, then they started again, 40 brave soldiers for Jesus, 40 brave soldiers for Christ. And all 40 of them died. All 40 of them died. And the sad thing was, the guy that bailed, the guy that came out, um, he was almost frozen, and they put him in one of the warm baths, and it was such a shock to his system that he went into convulsions, and he died too. Um, But he bailed on that. He rejected. He turned his back on... Jesus. The Philippians' minds, just like the guards that were chained to him, their minds were changed when they saw the way that Paul lived it out, when he lived it out in real time. I mentioned that this was the first church that he planted in Europe. If we go back to Acts 16, we see how this church was actually formed in Acts 16. Um, Acts 16, Paul and Silas are traveling. They pick up Timothy. Timothy would be Paul's protege. He wrote a couple letters to him that, you know, towards the end of the Bible, 1 and 2 Timothy, where he tells him, fulfill the calling of your ministry, Timothy. Keep it up. But they pick him up, and they start traveling. They want to go into the region of Asia and preach the gospel, but it says that the Holy Spirit forbid them from going into the region of Asia. They don't know what's going on. They keep hitting closed doors. And then one night, Paul has a vision. He has a dream of a man from Macedonia calling out to him, you know, come and help us. And so he wakes up, and it's funny because it says, we concluded that we were supposed to go to Macedonia (laughs) Um, because he had this vision. I think it's interesting because sometimes God speaks something to us, or we read something, or somebody says something to us, and we're like, I wonder if that was God, you know, when all the signs are pointing. Uh, yes, that's what we're supposed to do. But he had this vision, and he said, all right, we're going to go to Macedonia. And they went to the city of Philippi, which was the, the big city in that region. Um, and the first convert was a woman named Lydia. And she was a businesswoman, and she got saved. It says that she and her family got saved. When they got to town normally, what they would do is they would go to the synagogue. And Paul would start there, and he would you know preach to the Jews there, but apparently there wasn't a synagogue there. There weren't even, remember we said there had to be 10 men to form a synagogue, so there weren't even 10 Jewish men there. Um, and so they supposed that there was a place of worship down by the river, which is funny because how many hundreds of songs are written about going down to the river? Down to the river um, to pray. and. Uh, I like if you guys like old oh Brother though I, that that, I think that movie's funny. At least I think it's funny. But I think it's funny. And there's a whole song about you know going down to the river to pray, learning about that good old way. Who will wear the robe and crown? Good Lord, show me the way. You should watch it. Okay, <laughs> I hear me sing. But they go down there to the river and they meet this group of women and they get saved. They were worshipers of God, but they didn't know about Jesus. And so they tell them about Jesus, they become saved. And everything's groovy at that point. They're going down to the river and they're meeting with these women daily. And what was happening is this slave girl, this girl was following them through town. And it says that she had the spirit of divination. She was possessed by an evil spirit. And as they were walking through town, she would say, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Which would have been really cool, like, on day one, or maybe day two. You know, like, that's cool. Hey, we got somebody. But Paul knew that something wasn't right. He knew that there was an evil spirit at work. And so one day, I'll read to you. This is actually kind of funny. Um, in chapter 16, verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed... Turn and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. I love how it says, greatly annoyed. <laughs> day after day, stinking girl, turn around, and come out of her, you know, and it came out. But it says that, you know, the guys that own this little slave girl, they got ticked because they were rich. They had made a lot of money on her divination, on her fortune telling. And so they got mad. And then in verse 23, it tells us, and when they had, um, so they grab the guys, they take them in front of the leaders of the city, and they're like, listen, these guys are causing all kinds of trouble, Uh, they're preaching some foreign religion, and, you know, they're messing up our trade. And so in verse 23, it says, and when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And when he received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, at this point, If I'm Paul and Silas, I would have thought, what's the deal, God? (laughs) Like, you gave me a vision. We're supposed to come to Macedonia and preach to these people. Like, things are going well. People are getting saved. And now we're sitting here in this prison? What gives? Um, If anyone could feel justified about being depressed or bummed about their situation, it would have been Paul and Silas here. Um, Have you ever felt that way? Like God, what's going on? You know, I'm serving you, going to church, reading my Bible, tithing, I'm sharing my faith with people, and now this is happening to me. Like I don't get it. The other night, Friday night, Alicia and I, um, she was uh, she's worked she has Shine Camp this week with the kids, and she's trying to work through some things and come up with some ideas, and she was you know frustrated, and she's like, let's go for a walk, and so it was nighttime and we went for a walk, and we're walking out of the neighborhood and one side of the street is like all dark and you know trees and scary things and then the other side uh, the sidewalk is all lit up there's lots of street lamps and everything so i said let's go over to the other side where we can see each other and talk. And so we're walking along and this portion of the sidewalk is at the bottom of this big hill where a bunch of like slime and mud and water had washed over the sidewalk and elise just went in front of me and she took one step and here she is. just pouring her heart out to me. And we're trying to talk through what she's going to do for ministry. And she takes one step. And she, her feet fly in the air. And she falls backwards. And she falls flat on her back. And she hits her head. And, yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell you guys. It was bad. It was terrible. And so I pick her up. I didn't have a chance to even catch her. It happened so fast. And so I pick her up. And I'm, you know, checking her out. And all of a sudden, this go-kart, stinking go-karts in our neighborhood, with all these teenage boys come flying down the sidewalk. We had to jump out of the way from those boys, and it was it was a mess. It wasn't good. But at that point, you know, we're like, what is the deal? Like, what's going on? Here we are talking about ministry, and, you know, she falls down, hits her head. I mean, all this junk's happening, and we had a choice at that point, you know? We could have fleshed out, you know, we could have wallowed in self-pity, but And we didn't do it perfectly. (laughs) Like, it wasn't good. But we went back home, and it was a mess. It was. It was life. We weren't happy about it. But we went back, and, you know, we prayed, and we started actually working on Shine, and we got a lot of stuff done. It was cool. God um, gave her a bunch of stuff. And, you know, that was was a difficult situation. But sometimes the temptation is to wallow in our self-pity and say, I have a right to feel this way. Look at what's going on around me. Look at my circumstances. I have a a right. I'm okay in feeling this way. Um, When, you know, the truth is we need to find our joy in the one who was acquainted with grief, acquainted with sorrow, and yet found joy in the midst of it. Somebody asked R.C. Sproul once, and I know I mentioned this, but R.C. Sproul, they said, R.C., why do bad things happen to good people? And R.C. Sproul had this classic line. He said, well, I haven't met any good people yet, so I really wouldn't know. (laughs) There aren't any good people. The real question is, why do good things happen to bad people? That's the real question. Because the Bible says, there are no good people. Instead Instead of indulging in their flesh, which is what Paul and Silas could have done, look at what they did. Chapter 16, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, And the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened and when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself supposing that the prisoners had escaped but paul cried with a loud voice do not harm yourself for we are all here and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before paul and silas And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. And he took them to the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house, set food before them, and he rejoicing along with his entire household that he believed in God. That's amazing because Paul and Silas chose to worship, they chose joy, instead of wallowing in their self-pity and being depressed and bummed about their situation. This is pretty cool because the church is growing. (laughs) First it was the women and their families down by the river, now it's the jailer and his family, his entire household. So the church is growing. But I tell you what, this is all we hear about from the converts in Philippi, the women and their families and the jailer and his family. Interesting. Maybe some of the prisoners have experienced the whole thing, but they weren't going to make it to small group. (laughs) They were still still in jail. They weren't going to make it. So we have this little tiny church, this group of people that started in Philippi, but they remained loyal to Paul. They partnered with him in his ministry, they provided for him, and they grew in maturity. And I always wonder about that because how did it stick? Like, they didn't have the New Testament. most of it hadn't been written yet I don't know if they had Paul's letters that he had written to the other churches we don't even know if they had the Old Testament so without the scriptures I would suggest to you that because they saw Paul and Silas living out their faith they taught it but they taught with more than words they taught with their actions and they watched them in the middle of persecution not lose their joy, stay with the faith, they became single minded they changed their minds, and God changed their hearts, and that changed the way that they lived. It's like 25 times in this, in this book that, that Paul talks about our thinking or remembering. Either think or remember. It's really hot in here, isn't it? It's just make it hot. <laughs> okay. Proverbs... I'm not complaining. I still have joy. Proverbs 4... <laughs> Proverbs 4.23. That's a first world problem. Proverbs 4.23 tells us that... Um, Out of your heart flow the springs of life. Out of your heart flow the springs of life. That's where God is doing a work, in our hearts. But we have to change our minds. Chapter 1 is all about being single-minded, how we live our life. Paul talks about, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He's like, listen, the goal is to be with Jesus. I'd rather leave and go be with Jesus. But it's better for you guys if I live. It means fruitful work for me, so... You know, if I live, that's okay too. Um, Better to be with Jesus. In in verse 27, Paul Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The way that we live it out needs to be worthy of the gospel. Doesn't mean that we earn our salvation. Not at all. But when we are of one mind, when we're standing firm, when we're striving together... It will be a clear sign to unbelievers, to people out there, that there is something going on inside our hearts that we're different. Something that's good that they're going to be drawn to, right? And then in chapter 2, Paul transitions to our example and having a submitted mind. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. To have this mind, like Jesus, who was submitted to his Father, who just wanted to do his will. And when we do this, in verse 15, it says that we will be like lights in this world. When we can walk through trials in life with a joyful heart, but living with the hope, with the knowledge that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And we don't turn inward, we actually serve others. We have a submitted heart that serves others. We don't curl up and turn inward. That is going to be so countercultural, so different than what the world sees, that it's going to look like a light in a dark place. And they're going to want some of that in their lives. People are drawn to it, but they're watching. In summer of 1805, this was an interesting story. In summer of 1805, a number of Indian chiefs and warriors met at a council in Buffalo Creek, New York, to hear a presentation of the Christian message by a Mr. Cram from the Boston Missionary Society. And after the sermon, a response was given by one of the leading chiefs, among other things, he said this, Brother, you say that there is but one way to worship and serve the great spirit. If there is but one religion, why do you white people differ so much about it? Why not all agree as you can all read the same book? Brother, we are told that you have been preaching to the white people in this place. These people are our neighbors. We're acquainted with them. We will wait a little while and see what effect your preaching has upon them. If we find it does them good, makes them honest and less disposed to cheat Indians, we will then consider again what you have said. People are watching. They're watching. And what do they see? Do they see lights? Or do they just see more of the same? More of the same of the world? Chapter 3 deals with having a simple mind. Deals with having a simple mind in our goal. Paul says, hey... To write the same things to you, things that you already know, it's not a burden for me, and it's good for you, it's safe for you. And Peter says the same thing in one of his gospels. He's like, Listen, it's not a problem for me to write you things that you already know. It's good for you. And it's good for me too. Don't go looking around for some deeper the- theological truth. The gospel is simple, it's not complicated. You know the truth. It's not about circumcision. We are the circumcision, it's not about marks in the flesh. We are the mark that shows the new covenant of Jesus. It's just through faith. And our goal, Paul says in verses 13 and 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to that which lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The straining forward, the picture here in straining forward is of a runner, a sprinter, you know, lunging for the tape. That is the, the picture here of striving forward towards the goal. Um, if you're a football fan, I've noticed this in recent years. This has become a trend. That uh, when the other team is up against the goal line and there's a player and he's running towards the goal, and it becomes apparent that he is not going to make it, he will, you know, reach the ball out towards the goal line because if he can just get the tip of the ball to break the plane to cross the white line, then it's a touchdown. So. They'll reach it out real fast and then pull it back, you know, so they don't get swatted away. And lots of touchdowns have been scored that way, I've noticed, in recent years, Um, and fumbles too. But they'll reach it over real quick. They're striving. They're trying to get to the end zone, and they stick it across. Um, Now, there are other plays, you guys probably know what I'm going to say. There are other plays that end up on what SportsCenter calls the not top (laughs) ten. They have the top ten plays of the week, and then they have the not top ten, the worst plays. And one of them, I've seen this multiple times, where somebody is running down the field, they're streaking down the sideline, and the other team is so far behind them, they're not in danger of getting caught, and the person who's running is holding the ball in their hand, and they're in such a hurry to get to their celebration dance that they drop the ball before they cross the line. It's incredible to me. I can't believe it when I see it. But they're in such a hurry to get to their celebration as they drop the ball and before it crosses the line and it's a fumble and the other team usually recovers the ball when it should have been an easy score. And Paul is telling these uh, believers here in like, look, don't drop the ball. Keep striving, keep standing firm in the faith, reach the goal. And then in chapter four, uh, chapter four is only four chapters. I promise I'm not choosing just small books. One of these days we'll get into a long book. And I'm going to make you guys all sign off that you'll stay the entire time. <laughs> It'll be a big commitment. The last chapter deals with having a settled mind. Uh, a settled mind and our sufficiency in Jesus. In verse 5, chapter 4, verse 5. He says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus It says hey the matter is already settled Jesus is victorious he's already won he's at the right hand of the father literally he is at hand don't be anxious we need to tell God what's going on in our lives we need to have that conversation with him with prayer and supplication in everything with Thanksgiving yes he knows what's going on in our life it doesn't take him by surprise but when we have that conversation, when we connect with him, he does a work in our heart. He gives us a peace, a peace that nobody understands. People will say, How can you act like that? How can you have joy? How can you be stable when everything around you is falling apart? And you say, I don't know. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. That's the only explanation for it. I'm not happy about it. I don't like it. But I know that God is sovereign. And if he allowed this in my life, he allowed it for a reason. And I'm just going to relax in the knowledge of what he's done for me. And I will choose to have joy. I'll choose to have joy in the midst of difficult situations. And then the last portion, Paul talks about God's provision, um, our sufficiency. We have this famous passage, which sometimes gets taken out of context. So um, I'll read it to you. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be in content. To be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So whether times are good or whether times are bad, God strengthens me throughout all of it. Paul would write in his letter to Timothy later on that godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We have brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. None of my kids, none of my six kids, came out of the womb holding cash in their hands. <laughs> they all came out with their fists clenched. right? They all come out grasping. It said that we come into this world with our fists clenched, but we die with our hands open. We can't take anything out of this world. Um, there was there's a funny story, um, and I'm, I'm almost done. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, you can probably go get Alicia and the girls' There's a story of a man who asked his wife, he said, listen, when I die, I want you to put my best suit on me, dress me in my best suit, and I want you to fill my pockets, fill all the pockets with gold, and then sew them up. I'm going to try to take them with me." And he ends up passing away, and his wife, it's his, you know, it's his last wish, so she puts gold in his pockets and she sews it up, and when he gets to heaven, when he gets to the pearly gates, He reaches down and touches his pockets and all the gold's in there. And he's like, yes, I did it. I brought the gold with me. And he gets to the gates and the angel says, why'd you bring asphalt to heaven? (laughs) Because the streets in heaven are paved with gold, right? Even if we could take it with us, even if we could take this with with us, it would be so worthless in heaven compared to what's waiting for us. Bible says that eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, the wonderful things that God has in store for those who put their faith in Him. So, <laughs> I've never seen anybody out in front of my house chipping up the asphalt to take it home and put it in their safe. It's just worthless stuff, right? Um, Jesus is to be our sufficiency. We can be content and joyful in Him because of what He's done. Um, The next to the last verse in this letter says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Here's the thing. If you're walking through a difficult season right now, this book is for you. If you're walking through a season where everything's perfect, where everything is peaceful, it ain't going to stay that way forever. <laughs> so this book is for you. About how we choose joy. Um, who hasn't seen The Princess Bride? Is there anybody who hasn't seen The Bride? Okay, perfect. I don't know how to explain it. When Wesley is talking to Princess Buttercup, and he says something to her. And she says, you mock my pain, never do it again. He says this famous line. I just It hits me. He says, life is pain, princess. Anybody who tells you differently is selling something. Life is pain. But how are we going to deal with that pain? How are we going to walk through it? We have the opportunity to change our minds, to change our mindset, to be renewed, so that God can do a work in our hearts so that we can walk through this life as lights, as examples of people that have chosen joy, no matter what. Amen.